This is The Politics of Everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast, so while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. Being authentic can be described as a buzzword in the entrepreneurial world. Being a leader who is authentic has been linked to being more respected and admired by those around you. My guest today is tackling this very topic head on. At five foot zip, Joanne Schonheim, or Joe prefers to be anything other than average and always strives to achieve her version of success on her own terms. Be careful in asking her what she thinks, she may just tell you. Growing up in family businesses spanning three generations, Joe preferred sitting in on the boardroom conversations to sitting outside playing with dolls. By 25, Joe had lived on three continents, circumnavigated a midlife crisis, started her own award-winning business and married her best friend. Her talent and passion for business and product has led her to work with some of the most big, re- biggest retailers in buying, national account and sales manager roles. She's a wife, a mother to two daughters and has first-hand experience in what it means to truly co-parent while pursuing equally important career ambitions. Here today, Joe will decipher the politics of authenticity. Hey, Joe, welcome. Hi, Amber. Thanks so much for having me as one of your panelists today. So growing up, how would you describe your interest at school in either the classroom or your spare time? Were you that creative kid, the sporty kid, the math geek? Where, where were you really finding your groove? I'm a little bit of an anomaly. I sort of both very left brain and right brain. So I don't think I really fitted into a specific pigeonhole. Um, I really love school and was a straight A student. My favorite subjects were geography because I really loved learning about other cultures, especially. I loved English because I really loved the power of the written word. I loved economics because it was very conceptual. And I guess my real forte was art, which I guess is a visual form of communication. And again, very conceptual and a way to express yourself. So I used to stay up until the wee hours of the morning working on my assignments, even in primary school, decorating, individualizing each page. And from a very young age, I was really ambitious and wanted to be an art director in advertising. I guess I was really fascinated by consumer psychology and tapping into people's authenticity in terms of understanding what led to the decision-making processes. Uh, in my spare time, I did art and dance and was also a youth leader. And I think in that youth group was where I really learned to give myself permission to really be myself as I was respected and my voice was heard. That sounds interesting. So it sounds there's so much of a mix there in some ways, like you say, the left and right brain, which is great when you're going to be an entrepreneur later on in life because I think you need all of that. But I guess you probably had an earlier career that was not necessarily straight away where you are now. What did you do in your early career and why did you do it? I love to tell the story of my first job, which I couldn't wait to get my first job. So at exactly 14 years and nine months, I went up the road to the local bakery and uh, you can laugh if you like. It was called Mr. Krusty. And that was my first, um, <laughs> yeah, no joke, not making this stuff up. That was my first foray into, into customer service and, and being customer facing. 
And I learned very quickly there because it was such a sort of mechanical job that if you connected with people on a really human level, that your job was more fun, your day went faster, and that people really enjoyed being served by you because you had that human touch. After uni, I was headhunted um, to be an assistant. Oh, by the way, what did you study at uni? Just let me jump in there. (laughs) What did you study? I'm feeling like it's going to be something creative, but it may not be. That was part of circumnavigating my midlife crisis. So I had the marks to go and do economics or, or business or law, and I decided to follow my passion, which was art. Having said that, I knew that I would never actually be a professional practicing artist. I always say that I'm not crazy enough. I'm too pragmatic to be a professional practicing artist, but I knew that if I didn't get that out of the way early, that I'd probably go off and have some big high-powered corporate career and then quit everything at 40 and go back to uni to study art. So yeah, so I majored in drawing and painting because I figured that if I did end up doing anything in design, that those are the fundamentals and the absolute basics. And again, it's always about stripping things back to the rawest form, which I guess in a way kind of ties back to the whole thing of authenticity. Absolutely. So after uni, where where did that lead you in terms of a career job, if you like? So as I was saying, I was headhunted to be an assistant buyer for a jewelry company. So I first went for a job with one company and then the competition heard that I was going with them. So they jumped in. The one that I ended up taking, I was just reflecting back on it a little while ago about how that was probably my first proof of concept to myself, I guess, in terms of being authentic in the workplace and being true to myself and standing up for that. So my boss wanted to massively underpay me probably because of my age and because it was such a coveted position to get at, you know, the ripe age of 20. Most people spend 20 years in their career trying to get to that position. Anyway, he he put a job offer on the table and I did the maths and I came back and I said, listen, I can make that being a waiter. So don't really know why (laughs) I would choose to come and work for you and work so much harder and longer hours and bring so much more value to the table for basically a waiter's wages without any tips. And he was, you can see he was like totally taken aback. And he said, well, what do you think you should be paid? So like in the movies, I wrote a number on a piece of paper and I slid it across the table and he looked at it and he looked at and looked up at me and was like, wow, I don't think I've ever had anyone do this to me, especially at your age, but yeah, okay, I, I agree. And then I said, I have a second condition to coming to work for you. And he's like, what's that? And I said, I don't do dolphins. He's like, what do you mean you don't do dolphins? And I said, well, in fine jewelry, I know that, you know, some of your best sellers, especially amongst the younger demographic, really oh, love this is This is dating dolphins. you, Joe. I'm remembering dolphin jewelry <laughs> in a matching set. Yes, in a matching set with like maybe like a little, little hands um, curled around the dolphin that was like jumping through the air, like in the sh- curled around the dolphin, like in the shape of a love heart. So I said, yeah, I don't do that cliched crap. And um, if you want me to be a buyer for you, I don't do kitsch. And that's one of the reasons why I want to work for you is because your stuff is really classy. So if if you are going to make me buy dolphins, then that's the line in the sand. I'm not doing it. <laughs> um, I love the fact that you knew who you were even at the ripe old age of 20 in your first job. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and it's actually paid off ever since because I've realized that it's, I can basically sell anything but the the in order to do that, I have to align myself with the company that I believe in their values, um, and I have to believe in the product or the service that I'm selling. Because then I'm not selling; then I'm just being authentic in terms of I'm personally advocating for something I personally would put my money towards. Um, 
and yeah, that I just see it as, as helping people get the best deal for the best product. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it served me well in future careers. So that leads me to the big question. How would you define the authentic self or authenticity in its purest form? Uh, again, even though I said I don't like cliches, but I guess cliches are, are there for a reason because they're true. Um, I guess I would define authenticity or your authentic self as being true to yourself. So really connecting to the inner you, but I mean the one without noise. So the one without the filter of self-criticism, the awareness um, and worry of what others may think of you. I guess it's how you would behave when no one was looking and what you would say if your thoughts were subtitles. So, um, for, yeah, for me, authentic self is your inner voice and it's your internal rudder. So it always knows where you should go, what you should do next, um, and what you really want to say without the internal censorship. It's your inner quiet, basically. Absolutely. So there's a well-known TED talk called The Power of Authenticity, which I looked at again in preparation for our chat today. The guy's called Mike Robbins. He's not necessarily well-known, but it was from the TEDx Greenbrook School And I love the way the speaker and the author shares that idea that we need to be ourselves because everyone else is taken. And that's kind of the book that he wrote, which is a fantastic title. What impact does that simple but truthful idea have for you? And how do you interpret that in your life and how you operate? Um, I guess I'd also say that I really um, align myself with, with what he says in terms of the fact that everybody else is already taken. And to answer your question, I guess it's in these days of intense competition, I think you really need to understand what your unique proposition is. So um, that's why it's so important to be your authentic self, because as he said, there is only one of you. Um, And if all you're trying to do is to conform to the masses, then you're just one more robot, one more clone. And as I like to say, just one more shade of beige and the world doesn't need more beige. So um, I see it as it's a, your, your authentic self is that you're a gift and you were put on this earth to share that. And if you think that you're not interesting enough to be yourself and that you'd be you know, far more interesting if you were a different version of it, I think that um, you're far more interesting and have a, a far more newsworthy story than you give yourself credit for. If you think that you're fairly stock standard and terribly unremarkable, well, I have a newsflash. You're not, you're just not very connected to your authentic self. You're not sharing your real story. You're not boring. It's your filtered self that doesn't show vulnerability that is boring. No, that's a great way of summing it up. Does that make sense? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the flip side of it is what do you think the consequences are for people not being authentic? You have touched on that idea of you'll just be seen as beige and so forth. But what do you think the personal consequence is if you don't actually live your true self? Well, I think if you're not willing to be authentic, then don't be surprised when you get more of what you don't want and less of what you do. Unless you represent yourself accurately, honestly, and authentically, you'll be attracting the wrong thing. I'm a firm believer in that we teach people how to treat us. So if you don't express how you feel and you don't let people in and you don't draw your boundaries at the get-go for how you'd like to be treated, people will make their own rules and ultimately decide for you. So I think that's the real cost that you're going to pay for not being authentic. Because if you're not being authentic, you're actually in the business of false advertising. So, you know, the rules of engagement aren't clear. So I guess the flip side of that, if you show up as you are, you own it, you own your feelings and you take responsibility for them and be prepared to to back them um, and be prepared to back yourself. Because if you're not able to do that, then you have a self-esteem issue or self-worth challenges to work on. And I guess those two things really underpin being authentic. So 
you need to be either super comfortable with who you are, um, not because you're perfect, but because you actually recognize and accept that you are perfectly imperfect and that who you are at this very minute is enough. I think that's the key to it, isn't it? Knowing you are enough. And uh-huh. I think authenticity, unfortunately, is a bit of a buzzword in business at the moment. So it probably in some ways takes away from what the true meaning of it is and the true value of it. In your business life, so you've obviously gone on to a more corporate career and we have skipped, I guess, a couple of chapters in that. But in your corporate experience, what has that shown to you or backed up for you about the power of being authentic to change how we operate at our best so that we can all enjoy work but also you're doing your best? Has that been something you've been really conscious of or has it just been absolutely status quo for you and that's how you operate absolutely to be honest it's one of the things that I find the most challenging in corporate is that in corporate we're so taught to be robots and to just be yes men and to to manage upwards and I just am a firm believer that that doesn't do what's for the greater good of the business and it doesn't yield the right results Um, I've worked in many teams where the culture was really toxic and people were very miserable and had basically just been beaten into submission. Um, People were afraid. They were afraid to say what what they actually thought. They were afraid to connect with their team and and to reveal any what they would perceived as weakness. Um, A big thing that I think is really important, and I I always try and share this with people that I become closer to, is that I don't believe that vulnerability is weakness. I actually believe that vulnerability is strength. So whenever I go into one of those toxic, <laughs> toxic teams, um, I, one of the first things that I do is start working on the team dynamics. Um, I do that usually by using humor um, as a way of breaking the ice and diffusing the tension within the team. And within that, I show a bit of vulnerability and share some of my stories. And when you put skin in the game, people then um, feel safe to step towards you and, and, and share a little bit of their story too and start to become real. Um, the other thing that I've um, done in corporate in terms of um, trying to change the way that we operate so we can be our best is encouraging people to question their tactics. So if we're in a group meeting and we're discussing strategy, we've got a problem and we're trying to overcome it and people come up with their suggestions, um, I ask them, are we doing this with the intention to actually move the needle or are we doing it just to tick a box to say we tried, but we're not, we already know from the get go that we're not going to be successful at this. Um, So I guess that's about questioning people's authenticity and asking them to bring their authentic selves and what they really think is going to be going to work. Because if you're, if you're not going to put effort in something that you think is going to work, then you're just wasting everybody's time. So um, there's so much power in being authentic especially in the corporate um corporate workplace if a will have a better team culture and b will yield better results because we're actually not in denial we're facing how things actually are we're bringing our best version of ourselves to the game um and we're working better together as a team because we we implicitly trust each other more and we trust each other with being compassionate towards each other and having a deeper understanding and connection with who we are Absolutely. So what are some of the obvious advantages of being authentic or avoiding that? And is there a personal example where you can maybe share your own vulnerability because that's the theme now (laughs) that you've put us on to, very Brene Brown of you, I love it, Um, around the idea that, you know, if you don't do it, what are the consequences for everybody but also, you know, what are the advantages of doing it? So a little, maybe a little story from your own experience of maybe where you weren't as authentic as you could have been and how it panned out and what you might have done differently even. Um, so in terms of what the advantages are, um, of being authentic versus avoiding it, 
um, I guess to be pretty blunt, I get what I want more often because I'm able to influence and persuade people because they hear that I'm the real deal. They can trust that I mean what I say and that I say what I mean. Um, I guess when you're dealing with a straight shooter like me, you can see that I don't have a hidden agenda. So it builds trust and rapport really quickly. Um, that means I put skin in the game and I put skin in the game very early on. Um, cause I believe that, it, as I said before, it gives permission for other people to do so. Um, and I guess I'll give you a, a positive story about that and then I'll try and find you a negative one. But a positive story about that is that when I go through interviews, I very rarely ever have to go through the final hoops of the interview. So I get fast tracked, um, to the job offer part because I think people feel very comfortable um, very early on with who they're dealing with and they understand and have a solid understanding of the unique proposition that I bring um, because I understand my unique proposition um, very clearly. So um, that's one of the real And do you articulate that or do you hope people kind of get it? Like if you don't know someone, how are you able to do that very quickly? Um, I actually articulate it to be honest and obviously there's always the risk um, – of seeing up yourself, but I don't know. I just think that no one else is going to be your advocate. No one else is going to champion you and be your cheerleader. So you just do it in a, in a diplomatic way and with a level of self-awareness. And I guess also self-deprecating humor can really help to counter that. So it shows that you're a big believer in yourself and that you understand your unique proposition, but you also can poke fun of your, at yourself, which also means that you're open to feedback you know, constructive um, feedback, or even if it's quite a bitter pill to swallow. <laughs> and I think that puts people at ease. Um, do you still want me to find an example of, of when it didn't if work? There isn't one, that is okay. I just um, thought we'd play and see if there was something where there might be a lesson for other people or maybe they can relate to it because I think, to be honest, the way you operate is not the way a lot of people no, operate okay. initially. Like I think people get to a point where they do but maybe not so early in, in, the, oh. in the process of maybe a workplace or a relationship okay. or whatever it might be. So um, I do have a little bit of a reputation for having um, foot and mouth disease. <laughs> because I am so, um, to use the bud work word, authentic. Um, so I'll often say stuff that other people will interpret as fairly outrageous. Like, I can't believe you, you said that. So I'll give you an example of, um, one of my more recent roles. Um, I was in, I was interstate doing an induction and being introduced to like 150 people all in one go. And so obviously it was very hard to keep up with who everybody was, who was who in the zoo. And people were just being like paraded through the door and being introduced. So one guy walked in and he was wearing a pair of like, you know, nice chinos and a, um, an ironed um, polo top. And he looked very respectable, but he didn't look like he was super um, formal, right? Or uptight. And so my colleague introduced me to him and I shook his hand and said, nice to meet you. And I straight out just said, so what do you do here? <laughs> and my colleague almost wet himself and fell off the chair because apparently the guy that I just said straight out, and what do you do, um, was the CFO of the company. Incredible. Um, <laughs> and we ended up building a really great relationship because it just took out all of that formality um, from the beginning. Obviously, it was a really big risk um, and I had to make a a note to myself of be more careful because there are other, you know, more senior people in the business that if you pull that same line on them, they might not take it, take to it as kindly. But I guess I was also judging my audience just by the way that he was dressed. I could see that he was probably less of an uptight rule following kind of guy. 
Interesting. You sought out that in the room, which was totally fascinating. Well, I read people subconsciously um, yes. to like a really um, great, intense level of detail without necessarily actually realizing it. But I, it's um, not just about judging their shoes now, no, is it? No, but I actually do think that judging someone by their shoes gives you an idea as to whether they're a reluctant corporate or not. Because if they've got the whole get up, but their shoes aren't polished, it means they really would probably be preferred to be wearing a pair of bodies and a singlet. Um, the shoes they think that nobody will notice. So it's a, it's a very reluctant part of their outfit. Interesting. <laughs> so, so fun to think about it like that. There is that risk and you have touched on it in, in one of your previous responses that being authentic or being sort of too upfront can be seen as obnoxious or self-righteous. Do you think there are times we need to, if not lie, but maybe pull back a bit for the greater good so that people feel comfortable and like and know us and trust us before we get to that point? Like what's your feeling there? Um, absolutely. And and it's um, something that I'm constantly aware of because I, I understand that, you know, not everybody loves the truth um, and that, my my inherent confidence could be um, interpreted as obnoxious or self-righteous, especially if the other person has a lower self-esteem or a, a lower sense of um, like a, a lower sense of self-worth. So I have to kind of counter that and be very aware of it. So there's always that inherent risk. And one of the ways that I diffuse that is um, I believe that's what disclaimers are for. So if you preface something obnoxious or self self-righteous, by saying um, with at the sound of at the risk of sounding obnoxious, and then you say blah 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 blah, then it's kind of like an an antidote to it, um, and again it shows self awareness. And as I mentioned before, it's about knowing your audience and realizing that there's a time and a place for everything. Um, but one of my major uh, opportunities for growth, we'll call it, which is another nice way of saying one of my problems, is um, recognize the difference between intention versus impact. So um, I will always be acutely aware of what my intention is, but how it lands on the other person can be very, very different. And sometimes that disconnect or that delta can be a lot wider um, or a lot bigger than I'm comfortable with. So sometimes I have to deliver a milder version of my authentic self or my authentic opinion. Um, and so I have to gauge what, what's the, what's the least I can say to still have the biggest impact and the greatest outcome, but bearing the least risk. Um, and to answer your final part of that question, which I believe was, is there other times when it, when lying might be, um, useful. So to sum it up in one word, Family. Not that I advocate lying. <laughs> family, but, you know, family, like, family. And everyone. Family is <laughs> family. a very good example of when to bite your tongue. Oh, that's interesting. Good. And that's because those are not temporary relationships. So if I end up in a relationship with someone really toxic, I will very quickly break up with them. I don't believe um, in associating or hanging around or spending my valuable time or energy with people who are toxic. But with family, those relationships are following you to the grave, baby. So if ever was, there was a time to keep your eye on the end game, it's with family. So yes, white lies are often needed to keep the family peace. That's very interesting. I love how candid you are about that. <laughs> my Maybe not everyone wanna... feels that way about their family. Some people, I think, feel like they can be their true selves with their family. So but perhaps it pretend, like depends on your family dynamic, but I totally relate to what, what you're saying. <laughs> How does being more authentic 
affect you as a wife and mother? And I know that's a big question, but I think we often focus on the professional and we have touched on this being family, but the people in your everyday life, are you the same with them as you are with people at work or are there special rules with those that are nearest and, and dearest to you? Um, uh, I think it comes down to sugarcoating. So, um, the and obviously small children are a bit different because, you know, <laughs> but the difference do they really want to know that, that their hair looks bad today? Probably not. Oh, uh, no, I'll tell them. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. No holds barred. So the, the difference between, um, my, myself at home and myself at work is not all that different. Um, the language that I use is probably different. Um, but I don't sugarcoat things for neither my husband nor my kids. And yes, sometimes that means that I do deliver a fairly bitter pill to swallow. But with my kids, especially, I treat them and talk to them like adults. I'm very, very real with them because I want them to build resilience and grit and for them to be able to recognize and own their feelings and opinions. And so that's why I encourage them to argue back, just like my parents did with me. Um, because I think that's how you encourage your children to be authentic is to give them a voice. And the only way they're going to feel that they have a voice that's worth being heard is if they're given permission from a very early age that what they have to say is important. So choose your words carefully and make them count um, and be prepared to back them. And if you can't back them, then (laughs) I will argue back with you. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, 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 it's pretty straightforward. There's, not that much of a difference between my authentic self at home and my authentic self at work. That's good to know given the fact that's the topic of the day. (laughs) So two questions I ask all my guests and, of course, I'm going to ask you two. The first is have there been any special mentors or people in your life and what have they taught you about success and life more generally? Um, So I guess it it comes back to the what most people would say, which is like your parents and your spouse. So for me, my dad, I'm exceptionally close to. Um, he's always been my biggest supporter and always taught me to um, embrace and to listen to my inner self and has never tried to change me. Um, obviously, he's helped try to help teach me life lessons, um, but he's probably taught me the most about success in life and that success is actually a gauge of how um, how closely you're living your life to to that inner being and what it is that you really um do want and what you um what you really do think um with my mum she's always taught me to be honest and to have integrity and, and obviously that old adage of to treat people with kindness but i think the interesting part about what my mum taught me about being nice and kind to others is it's not about being nice because of who they are and what you can see but be kind to others because you never know what battle they're facing. So you need to have compassion for them and empathy for them, even if you don't know what it is that you're having compassion and empathy for. But just know that what you see on the surface is never the true sum of what that person is. Um, And so, yeah, you should always be gentle with people um, until you get to know them, until you get to know them better. And in terms of my biggest supporter I'd say that that's my husband and he's been a real mentor for me especially in business in the early days because I didn't go to university and study business um, and he too grew up in um, uh, a series of family businesses so he he he's really helped me and helped build my foundation 
Um, on the one hand, he's my biggest support. On the other hand, I would challenge that perhaps he's not because um, he... He wears multiple hats, though. Does. I guess that's he's the reality. So if you just get an idea, he's not a practicing lawyer, but he's a lawyer. So if you just get an, an idea of what sort of personality type that is. So everything for him is about mitigated risk and keeping your cards close to your, your chest. And he um, went through his university days in politics and he's a politician at heart. So we've often clashed um, many times and had many fights um, about the fact that I am so real and I speak my mind because for him that's horrific. Um, but as as we've gotten older and moved through life's journey together, he's seen more and more the payoff that I've had from that and how much bigger my payoffs are because I connect with people the way that I do and I build such um, strong relationships and very, very quickly and how I can um, – forge relationships with total and utter strangers um, and make incredible connections and how I build my network through that. So I think he's finally coming around and I think he's going through his own little personal um, journey of connecting more with his authentic self and wearing that more on his sleeve. Oh, that's interesting. Finally, what would be your top three, two or three takeaway tips for anyone wanting to embrace the politics of authenticity? So first one is, and it's really important, um, to try and remember and understand this is that you teach people how to treat you. The second thing is I would say own it, just own it and everything that that encompasses. And the final thing I'd say is that the sooner you give yourself permission to be your authentic self, the sooner you'll feel so much better because we don't even realize how heavy the load is that we carry when we're trying to be something that we're not. It's absolutely exhausting. And when, when you shed that and you put it down, only then do you realize um, the weight that you were bearing and how much it opens you up and um, basically relieves you and allows you to breathe um, and gives you the energy and the space and the emotional space to take on more of what you want when you let go of all that crap that you don't want. And the final, final thing that I'd say is um, I would – I would beg you to ask yourself, um, can you continue to afford not being your authentic self? Because you're paying a way bigger price than you think. So yeah, that's, that's great it. advice. Excellent. So much in half an hour. I love it. <laughs> if you do want to connect further with Joe, she I'll give you some contact details on our show notes through her LinkedIn profile. Until next time, keep well. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespoke comms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.